0: Well, good morning, church. It's a joy to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, another greeting to those of you who are worshiping with us at home as well. Thank you for tuning in and joining us for this time of getting into the Scriptures. The title of today's sermon is Our Salvation Calling, comma, Ethnicity, comma, and Social Status. These are the three topics that arise from the text this morning. Once again, our salvation calling, ethnicity, and social status. Today we're going to see that Paul exhorts Christians that unless we are in sin, upon our calling to salvation, whatever our life station is, we are to remain in our life station and to fulfill our salvation calling. In other words, you can live the Christian life and you can honor Christ even in an un favorable situation. I know this alone sounds counter-American where everything is about individual freedom and individual joy and instant gratification and getting to a better life station. Now Paul in the scriptures does not negate the opportunities to reasonably advance in terms of societal status or moving to a better life station. But what he's saying is in situations where you're not able to move, where you're not able to ascend, when you're not able to exit a situation. And if that situation or life circumstance is not inherently causing you to be in disobedience against the gospel of Jesus Christ or scripture, then we must look for ways to fulfill our salvation calling. I know that this doesn't always make sense. That we have to remember that every circumstance is really part of God's sovereign plan for our lives. And it won't always seem fair. The grass will always seem greener on your neighbor's yard. Someone else's life will always seem more blessed than yours. But the reality is living for Christ really is the essence of a different type of power. It is a power that even if your situation doesn't change, you change. And it is in that internal change that we experience internal flourishing despite external circumstances. So let's look to God's word now. If you have God's word, please take it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 17 to 24. 1 Corinthians chapter Seven, you have your outlines on your digital bulletin as well as for those of you who are in person who picked up the physical bulletin, you have your outlines there as well. It's pretty simple this morning. There's one main principle which was previously stated and there's two examples of that principle. So one main principle and two examples Now, the principle is timeless, but the examples are contextual to Paul's day. He's talking about social structures, social context, and applications that made a lot of sense to the Corinthians, as well as the other New Testament churches. But to us today, we have to actually abstract and contextualize those principles and translate that to our time today. So we'll do that. That's our task today. So here's the main principle. The main point is unless you're in sin, remain in your present life station and fulfill your salvation calling. So yes, if you were previously worshiping another faith tradition or you're worshiping idols, then yeah, you need to make a change. If you were previously working in the porn industry or some very sinful situation yes you need to change your career but in most situations if you are not in an inherently outright sinful context then you must remain as you are where reasonable let's look in verse 17 first corinthians 7 verse 17 it says only let each person lead the life that the lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him, verb form kaleo. This is my rule in all the churches. What Paul's saying by the rule is he's saying, This is my application of the gospel. In all the churches that he writes to, all the churches that he planted, all the churches that he has involved in, he is consistent. This is not just for the Corinthians. This is for all the New Testament churches. Now, Paul exhorts the Christians to live the life that is assigned to us. Now, the life the Lord has assigned to us in the context of 1 Corinthians 7 was explained masterfully last week by Gabe uh, when he talked about your marital status. That some were saying, well, Paul, we are Christians now. But previously to becoming a Christian, I was married. And I've converted, but my spouse hasn't. So I'm going to divorce now. I'm going to exit that. Should I leave my marriage? And he's like, no. So as long as your spouse does not desert you, and so as long as they allow you to practice your Christian faith, it is better to uphold the biblical foundation of marriage than to leave that marriage just because you've been a Christian now. Well, Paul, I'm single. But now I'm a Christian, so should I get married? He's saying, if you're able to, yes. If you desire to, yes, if it's possible, but you don't have to. Others were saying, Paul, we're married, and we have responsibilities, but now I'm a Christian, and I see how free you are as a single person to serve God and to travel everywhere. Should we now leave our marriages and become single so that we can serve God? He's saying, no. If you want to be single, that's great. I encourage you to maintain singleness. But you shouldn't divorce just to become single now that you're a Christian. So those are examples where if you're in a context that's not inherently sinful, you must remain. It is better to remain and to fulfill your salvation calling. That's the point that he's saying. And this word to call, kaleo, is in the verb form. In the verb form, the word called, call, calling, is used eight times in this passage. And so what you see in eight times is that, well, Paul, you're kind of repeating yourself, which means this is the main point. This is uh, a point to draw our attentions to, attention to as Bible readers. And so we probably have to explain what he means by calling. A lot of times when you think of calling in our day, we think of a vocational calling. So someone might say, I feel called to be a a parent. There is a special calling to that. I feel called to be a doctor. I feel called to be a teacher. I feel called to be a pastor. It is a a vocational calling. And the importance of having some concept of a vocational calling is not so much to justify your calling, but that when the situations in life get hard, that it is a reminder to you that you should persevere because of your calling. Vocational calling. So if you feel called to be a teacher and you start to face the difficulties of online teaching in the midst of COVID-19, you want to quit. And you have the freedom to quit. But what keeps you going? I feel called. I have this call. And as Christians, we might call that a God-given call based on skills and decisions and doors that have been opened for us. Same thing with medical practices and so forth. Why should you remain? so forth, in your call to marriage or parenting. Why would you remain? Because there's something more than the circumstance. So some Christians are reading into this and they're confusing vocational calling from salvation calling. But if you look at the context, it is very clear based on Paul's usage, and I'll show you when you get to verse 20, that he differentiates your vocational calling with the word klesis the greek word klesis is the noun form this is also why i do think it's it's right for pastors to go to seminary to learn these things but everywhere else he uses the verb form kaleo so eight times kaleo salvation calling one time klesis the noun form referring to vocational calling okay so we'll expand that as we get into it. but it's very important that pastors understand the original languages you don't have to but it helps you. It helps me, and that's why I share it with you. Not to sound smart, but because interpretation now helps you to understand what he's talking about. So you can leave your vocational calling, your klesis, but you cannot leave your kaleo in this context, your salvation calling. Now, as I mentioned, there are two examples of the salvation calling, but what is the salvation calling? The salvation calling, theologians refer to this as your effectual call. What happens is when you convert to Christ, there's all kinds of spiritual things that are happening behind the scenes. Number one, there is the sovereign ordained plan of God to save you. And that is now being applied. So before the foundation of the world, God already determines who he's going to call to be his spiritual children. All the way from the Old Testament saints, all the way to the New Testament saints. It's all fulfilled in Christ. Then he says, in order for this call to happen, Jesus has to come down and be born uh, uh, through a virgin birth. Be a man, go to the cross, resurrect from the dead, all that. And people have to turn to Christ. So that's all part of God's plan. And then the Holy Spirit goes and he works in your heart then there's a certain point in time where you as an individual hear the gospel and you freely make a decision to respond to that call. But as you're responding, it's actually the Holy Spirit illuminating the gospel in your mind. And so all of these things are happening. That's your calling. That's a salvation call. Number one, God the Father is working. God the Son has worked. And the Spirit is working And He's calling you so that as you're considering facts, as you're considering biblical truth, as you're listening to an evangelist, as you're having conversations about whether or not you should be a Christian, so you're making a decision to respond to a call, but the Holy Spirit is helping you making those things true. Well, who's calling you? God's calling you. You see what I'm saying? So there's something supernatural that's happening Well, you are actually making a decision to respond to the gospel call. And then you share your testimony later and get baptized. And constantly you're referring back to your conversion. That is your salvation calling. It is an entire package. It is complex. Sometimes you might not even remember when that exact moment was. Because just as is said earlier in first corinthians for some of us a lot of investment needed some of you your parents shared the gospel with you you kind of understood it but then you kind of went away a little bit then then you had other people a pastor share the gospel then you went to a conference and heard some preaching and finally at a certain point someone led you to christ right all along the way so so if i asked you at what point were you saved you might say, well, there's multiple points. I kind of gave my life to Christ as a six-year-old. Uh, as a 6 I didn't really understand it. Then I went to college. It became a little more clear. I believed in Jesus. Then I walked away a little bit. Then I came back. At which point were you saved? Well, all of that at that point, God was working. But at a certain point, there was conversion. And so all of that is your salvation calling. Sometimes it needs to be complex so that it's weighty so that you realize that somebody planted, somebody watered, somebody brought to fruition. And the complexity of of your calling at times makes it very difficult to just abandon Christianity because there was so much that went into it. And so that is your salvation calling. Now, two examples starting in verses 18 and 19. The first example is the example of ethnicity. Ethnicity. And Paul's point is, you don't need to change your ethnicity to fulfill your salvation calling. Let me repeat that. You don't need to change your ethnicity to fulfill your salvation calling. Now let me read you verse 18, and if you'll look with me at your Bibles, verse 18. The Word of God says, "Was, Was anyone at the time of His call already circumcised? I'm not going to explain what that is. Just look it up on your phone. Okay, it's a today for us. It's a medical procedure over the male private part. So just look it up yourself. All right, um, kids, ask your parents. So was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him seek to remove. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. So. The point is, if if you were circumcised previous to your salvation, you don't have to be uncircumcised. Now, why would anyone go about being uncircumcised? Well, there was this practice among some Jews in the New Testament times where they would go through a medical procedure to be uncircumcised. Why? I don't even understand why you would ever show someone whether you're circumcised or not. Right? But I guess they wanted to fit in with the Gentile world. They wanted to advance, maybe in Greco-Roman athletics, or maybe they wanted to get ahead in Greco-Roman society. And they wanted to hide their Judaism. To hide their ethnicity in order to advance in social status, to be a Gentile. And Paul's saying, yes, yes, Salvation now is for Jews and Gentiles, but you don't need to be uncircumcised. You don't need to reverse your ethnic birthmark, if you will, if you grew up as a Jew and converted to Christianity. And why would he say if you were born as a Gentile, uncircumcised, that you don't have to be circumcised? Because we know in Galatians chapter 6, verse 13 as one example. The Paul actually had to oppose some Jewish Christians. There were actually some Jewish people who were Christians who were going around to the Gentiles and saying stuff like, well, Jewish uh, Jesus was Jewish, true. Jesus was and is the Jewish Messiah. True. Jesus fulfills the Old Covenant. True. So now if you want to be a Christian and worship the Jewish Messiah, you have to become a Jew. So you need to be circumcised as an adult to be a Christian. So it was circumcision plus the gospel. And Paul says, no, may it never be, that's anathema. And he takes these Jewish Christians to task in the book of Galatians. And we all also see it in, in the book of Acts. So that's why he's making this statement. Now what does that tell us? That we know that when he speaks about circumcision, it was much more than a medical procedure. That circumcision to the Jew recomm- uh represented the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. In Judaism, infants were circumcised to show that they were part of God's covenant people. So in the Old Testament, if you wanted to be an official member of God's people, you needed to be circumcised. It was was a sign of being in or being out. Are you in the, the covenant community of God, or are you out Are you an insider or an outsider? And if you're in the membership of God's community, then you or your father, if you're a female, would have been circumcised, right? So circumcision was for for the male. All Jewish men were circumcised as babies. So you have the husbands and the sons circumcised, the fathers. If you're a female Jew, and if your father was circumcised, then you are under that covenant blessing if your husband is circumcised you are part of that covenant blessing okay you're part of God's covenant people so what Paul's really saying is you don't have to change your ethnicity you don't have to change your ethnicity so the application for us today is is very clear you retain your ethnicity and then you become a christian that sometimes and I don't think it applies to us as much but in, but in some places of the world they perceive Christianity is as purely a Western religion that Christianity is Western in your thinking well technically Christianity is Middle Eastern <laughs> and yes uh, Christianity exploded in the Greco-Roman world and later on it became Western in many ways but sometimes when you talk to people from Asia, for example, they would think of Christianity as very American or Western, and you need to separate that. That there are values to being an American, there's values to Western thoughts and thinking, but Christianity is Christianity. Christianity is biblical. And so you retain your ethnicity, but you become a Christian based on the Bible and biblical teaching. And so that's very clear. And so that's what Paul's saying. He says, Jews, you can continue to have your dietary restrictions if that's what you want, but don't enforce it on other people. He says, Jews, you continue to be a Jew. Christians, uh, Gentiles, you, you eat whatever food you want to eat that you previously ate. So as long as it doesn't cause you to worship idols. And, and if you were Chinese, if you were Middle Eastern, uh, if, if you were European, uh, of, of a European descent, you keep your ethnicity. But you worship Jesus Christ because the gospel transcends ethnic boundary markers, ethnic boundaries. You see, that's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant had ethnic and geographical boundaries. God's promises to his Jewish people, there were ethnic boundaries, like things like circumcision, things like Jewish people and food and dietary laws that would separate you from the Gentile nations. And there was geographical uh, boundaries. Everything was in Jerusalem. Everything was from the city of David. Everything was Canaan, uh, the promised land. But the gospel was meant to spread from Jerusalem to Judea, to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel transcends all ethnic and geographical boundary and boundary markers. And so that's his point. In verse 19, he's saying, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Meaning, the reason why circumcision doesn't matter anymore, because the boundaries no longer matter. There's no longer any boundaries that keep people from the covenant community, because the gospel is meant to go to the ends of the earth to reach all peoples. So for us today, circumcision is purely a medical decision. Do you want it or not? It's up to you. It's up to your parents. It's up to you. It has no religious value in the sight of God, like it did back in the Old Testament. Paul makes this point very clear in Romans 2, verse 29. Romans 2, verse 29, where, where he explains, spiritually speaking, that it's really about the inward circumcision of the heart that matters, not obedience to the letter of the law of Moses. Meaning you don't need to change your ethnicity to fulfill your salvation calling. So now let's look to the second example. So the first example of why we must remain in our present life situation where reasonable is that you don't need to change your ethnicity to fulfill your salvation calling. The second is you don't need to change your social status to fulfill your salvation calling. You don't need to change your social status to fulfill your salvation calling. Notice that Paul restates the main principle in verse 20. Look with me at verse 20. Verse 20 is the same principle and I want you to see how most of your modern English translations do you a favor. Okay? So verse 20. It says, Each one should remain, stay, In the condition in which he was called. Now, if you have an older translation of the Bible, it might say something like this. Each one should remain in the calling in which he was called. Why? Because I mentioned in the beginning that this Greek word for condition is the noun form of call, klesis. And which he was called is the verb form, kaleo but in its tense, in a different tense. Now, your ESV helps you interpretively. This is why it's important that you have a good Bible translation. It helps you so that you don't have to do the the work, right? Where it, where it, it looks of the original languages for just the basic reader. It says, each one should remain in the condition. So that's where you would say, if there's a place for vocational calling or calling of life station, Then this is where it's at. And so Paul makes it very clear that there's a difference, that each one should remain in the noun in your present circumstance of wherever God has called you, in which he was salvifically called. So the condition is your circumstance, the he was called is your salvation. Okay, so let me make that very clear. Each one should remain in your circumstance but fulfill your salvation calling. So again, it's the, main, it's the same main point repeated. Now let's look at the example. I want you to notice though that, that what Paul is going to give you here is counter-American and it's counter-progressive movement. I want you to un- understand, number one, that Paul understands the evil systems and structures of the Greco-Roman world And he understands where it wasn't favorable. He also understands that the church is not the government and the church is not secular society. He understands that as an individual Christian leader that there is a sphere of influence where where the gospel can make a difference. And he knows that his role... Not to say that he can't make a difference, but that his role is not to reverse or change a secular systemic problem or a secular structural problem because the gospel has a different power, and as an apostle, he's not the secular government, and the government of the Roman Empire, as as well as Greco-Roman society, is fallen. And so there's not so much that he can do other than to show the church as a completely different redemptive structure, social context if you will. And his focus is on the individual heart, not the systemic structures. Because the problem with systemic structures and systems are that you change this, what is a system? You change the system and structure, but you have to keep on changing individuals. As long as there are sinful individuals, there's going to be sinful structures and governments and systems. But the gospel changes the individual heart. So I'm going to show you that this morning. All right. So again, this is counter-American. It is counter-Western because he's telling someone to stay in an uncomfortable situation yet it is counter-progressive liberal because he's saying it's, the focus is not on blaming structures and systems of society, but focusing on transforming individuals. Now let's look at it. So this is classical Christianity. Verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called as an individual? Don't be concerned about it then. But if you can gain your freedom... Avail yourself to the opportunity. So, let me be very clear. This word bondservant, the English translation is being nice. It's the word loss, slave. So, Paul encourages slaves to remain in your condition if you can't free yourself. But he encourages slaves, if you can be freed, then do it. So, I need to be very clear here, because nowadays, you look at San Francisco and what they're doing with the schools, changing the names, you look at what's happening with statues, is that anyone who remotely supported slaves or was complicit in supporting slavery or owned slaves, are being canceled. And we recognize that American slavery was evil. And we condemn American slavery. So I want to be very clear that Paul is not supporting American slavery. He's not supporting slavery at all. He is speaking with reality that as an apostle, he knew he couldn't reverse this social construct of the Greco Roman world. But he knew that the gospel could transform hearts one at a time and can equalize masters and slaves. So let me show you what he does. First, let's understand the difference between American slavery and Greco Roman slavery. If you and I lived in the Greco Roman world, most of us, most of us, depending on how much money you have, so I can't say. Uh, all of us, most of us, if you're an accountant, doctor, engineer, teacher, you're a slave, okay? So let me show you. Slavery was commonplace in the Greco-Roman world, but the slavery of the New Testament times was not like American slavery. Surely, there were abusive forms of slavery, so don't get me wrong. This is a fallen world. Of course, there were evil masters who abused their slaves. But generally, slavery in the Greco-Roman world was filled with the most educated people. Scholars explain that slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race. That's the number one difference versus American slavery. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race. One could be, number one, born a slave Sometimes people would, number two, sell themselves into slavery to to earn some money, and then they would try to buy their way out of slavery. Or they could be sold into slavery by someone else, so that would be more of an oppressive example. Or they would become a slave because they were captured in war, which is, again, more of an oppressive idea. Scholars estimate that in the city of Corinth, one-third of the population were slaves. So that's a third. One-third were emancipated slaves. So that's another third that at one time they were slaves. And one-third were free-born citizens. So if you do the math, that's two-thirds of the population that were slaves at one point in life. Now, there were slaves who lived miserably. So let's not take away from that. But there were those who worked in mines, and that was, like, not a favorable place to work. But many slaves served as doctors, so you were a hired doctor of a wealthy aristocratic family. You were a teacher hired, so you were educated. You were a manager of an estate. You were musicians, accountants, barbers, cooks, shopkeepers, or shop managers, estate managers, you get my point. Unlike American slavery, slaves were, where slaves in America were systemically prevented from getting an education during the time of American slavery. In the Greco-Roman world, the slaves were, most of the time, more educated than their masters, and the slaves were more educated and more skilled than the freemen. A lot of times, the free people, they were just rich and aristocratic. They were just rich. They, they didn't have to learn any skills or learn anything because they had these educated bond servants. But there were a lot of times where people would want to be slaves of a good master. It would be like you wanting to work for a really good company to have great benefits. So this was very different. At the end of the day, the living condition of a slave really... Depended on the character of his or her master. And there was actually a practice. This is the difference between ancient slavery in the Greco-Roman world uh, and American slavery, is that there was a practice called manumission, where slaves could actually work up enough payment from their masters to purchase their own slave, their own freedom with the help of their masters. And so Once again, I want to make it clear, Paul is not approving any form of slavery, nor is Paul suggesting that slavery in general is a good social construct, or nor is Paul anywhere, anywhere supporting how we understand American slavery. Now let's look at verses 22 and 23. It makes the point that if a slave can become free, they ought to, but they are already free in Christ. So that's the principle of you don't need to change your circumstance if it's not changeable to be free. True freedom is spiritual freedom. Look at verse 22. He says, For he who is called, salvation calling in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with the price, that's speaking of our redemption. So redemption is slave language. The Israelites were redeemed from Egyptian slavery. You and I were spiritual slaves to our sin and slaves to Satan, and God freed us. So when it says you were bought with a price, meaning Jesus purchased our spiritual freedom, it says do not become bondservants of men, meaning don't serve the the cultural values of society. Don't don't look at social stratification and let, let that enslave you into your value in society. Remember that you are a Christian. But I want you to see the play on words here. This is masterful. And this is why you see that Paul understood the power of the gospel as opposed to social power. He understood that it was not his role in his time. In fact, oftentimes he was in prison. He was in prison. So it's not so much that Paul didn't think that he could be an abolitionist. <laughs> he was in prison a lot, running for his life. And so he knew he could not get into the government affairs of reversing a social construct. Instead, look at what he says. He says, if, you're, if you were called to salvation and you happen to be a bondservant, you're actually free in Christ. And if you're a master or a free man, guess what? you're actually now a slave of Christ. So he's talking to the masters now, saying if you're a master, if you are a free person, you actually need to obey Christ. You're actually a slave now of Christ. And if you're a slave of Christ, there's a certain way you need to treat people. So he's telling you that the church is a completely different social construct. And the church is a completely different social structure and social system. He's not saying that the world will change. He's saying that the church, you can be a master and slave outside of the church. When you come into the church, the relationship is equal, which means when you go outside of the church, that relationship is simply an employer-employee relationship, but things need to be done according to the gospel. He does care, but it's different. So now look at verse, verse 24. So brothers... In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Once again, he repeats. Now, to go to the gospel, I want you to look at Philemon, the book of Philemon. You could turn there. I'm not going to be referring to any particular verses of Philemon. It's not a long book. But in the book of Philemon, you get a good example of Paul's view of slavery in Paul's New Testament letter of Philemon. If you've never read the New Testament, if you're new to Christianity and you're reading Paul's letters, that means in your English Bible, everything from Romans to Philemon, I would actually read Philemon as the first book. When you start with Philemon, you begin to understand Paul's theology. Philemon opens the doors to actually help you understand. Paul in a lot of ways we can talk about that another time in a Sunday school type of session but I want you to see Paul's appeal to Philemon Philemon is a slave master and he had a slave named Onesimus now Philemon's bond servant Onesimus had presumably stolen from Philemon that's an inferred assumption and now he's run away he's escaped But somewhere along the way after he's run away from his slave master he converts to Christ through Paul's ministry. Now that's significant. So you have now Philemon the slave master who is a Christian. And you have Onesimus the runaway slave who has presumably committed a crime now converted to Christ and they are now equal in Christ. Now Being a runaway slave during that time was considered a capital crime punishable by death depending on context. Now, nowhere in this letter of Paul to Philemon do we get the hint that Philemon was a cruel or evil master. We don't get that hint anywhere. In fact, Philemon is appealed to as someone that Paul loves that's dear to Paul, this master. And so, We can assume that Onesimus, now becoming a Christian, realizes that what he did was wrong. And now this runaway slave turned believer in Jesus Christ is probably asking Paul, Paul, can you appeal to my master? Ask him not to prosecute me. Ask him to forgive me. And Paul, somewhere along the way, has probably convinced Onesimus that, hey, what you did was wrong. Go back To your master, because according to the laws of the land, you rightfully belong to him. Go back to him, and I will appeal for you. And Onesimus agrees that he could just run and hide, he could run away, but he is going to go back. And what we see here is that Paul. Or or another detail that we see here is that Onesimus, this runaway slave, has become not just a believer, but he's become a spiritual son to Paul. So Paul didn't treat Onesimus as a slave. He treated him like a spiritual son. So that's also significant. In our world, we respect people based on education and social status. But Paul, he, he looks at this guy, number one, he's a criminal, right? He's a fugitive. And... He's a runaway slave. And so think about that. If I'm a fellow pastor and I'm talking to a fellow pastor and there's one of their members is bad and comes running to me, I owe it to my fellow pastor to, to look at this guy who's ran away like differently, right? I, there's a mutual professional respect. Now, I'm not saying that that shouldn't exist. But notice that Paul, he doesn't look at this guy based on his social context as a runaway slave fugitive, he treats Onesimus like a spiritual son. Because whatever Jesus did to Onesimus, Onesimus is now a strong and mature believer. Now I want you to consider Paul's appeal to Philemon. We see a foundation of Paul's theology. His request is straightforward. Paul says to Philemon in a sense, If you regard me as a partner in the ministry, then receive Onesimus as if he were me. I want you to see that Paul cares about the social context. He writes to Philemon saying, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, but when he comes back, I don't want you to treat him like what he legally is, your runaway slave. I want you to treat him the way you would treat me. And I'm sending him back to you as my spiritual son. Think about that. If you and I are friends and you send me your children, I need to respect your children because I respect you. In the same way, if you're not here, I respect you, right? We're man to man, man to woman. Paul's saying that. He's saying, I'm sending him back. You do not treat him like his secular social status. You treat him as a fellow brother in Christ fully, regardless of his social status. So Paul's making a very clear point of how the gospel destroys social context and structure without changing the social structure. And think about where Paul would get this theology from. God the Father sends his son to represent him and we must receive the son as we would the father. Now Paul, the spiritual fathers, says, receive Onesimus, my spiritual son, as if you were to receive me. Treat him like me. And so, Paul is a genius. He's balancing obedience to the laws of the Roman Empire by returning the runaway slave. Nobody could accuse Paul of breaking the law, of being lawless. At the same time, Philemon's legal rights of ownership are being recognized, and he's adding a new social dimension through the gospel of saying, despite obeying the law, the gospel transcends the law. So there are three things that Paul is doing here. Paul has convinced Onesimus, the runaway slave, you need to return. You need to obey the rightful law of the Roman society. You need to remain as you are. Number two, Paul appeals to Philemon to take Onesimus back, not as a criminal, but his spiritual brother in Christ. And number three, Paul makes a spiritual request. And this is a new piece of information, is that he actually says, I'm going to send him back to you just so you guys can reconcile. Philemon, I'm sending back your runaway slave so that you can forgive him, so that he can confess his sin, so that you can reconcile. But I'm asking you for a favor. I'm asking you for a favor. Will you send him back to me? Because your runaway slave, now my spiritual son, has become helpful as an assistant to my ministry. You know what Paul's doing? He's asking for his freedom. So nobody can say Paul doesn't believe in the emancipation of slaves. He is actually saying, I'm sending him back to you legally, rightfully. Now you, I'm asking you, I'm asking you, Philemon, will you freely, lovingly, after reconciling, send him back to me? And Paul's saying, I want his freedom. And so this is beautiful. This is beautiful. Now, Did slavery continue as a social construct? Yes. Was there racism? Of course. Was there social stratification? Yes. But could you imagine what would happen as the gospel begins to equalize the status among fellow Christians regardless of whether they are masters or servants? Could you imagine as more and more Christian masters began to get transformed, how they would treat their slaves and more and more slaves become formed? And could you just think about what if every Christian master in the ancient world began to free their slaves? What if slaves who wanted to stay with their good and just masters saw slavery as their form of employment? Paul knew he couldn't change the social system. And he didn't sit around tweeting and writing, attacking systemic systems. Instead, he preached the gospel and discipled men and changed hearts by unleashing God's truth one person at a time, one word at a time. And in the secular world, the poor will be the poor. The rich will be the rich. The corrupt will be the corrupt. The Jews will be the Jews. The Gentiles will be the Gentiles. But once you enter the sphere of Jesus' church, all are equal because it's only the gospel that can give us the construct of redemption that our hearts know is right, true, good, and beautiful. So what matters is not where you stand within society or how society views you, but whom you're standing upon. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, regardless of our circumstances, all other ground is sinking sand. It is not so much about what your life station is, but it is upon whom your life is stationed upon. And if you have a fellow believer across from you, then those relationships need to reflect the gospel. And beloved, that is how we become a change agent in society, as salt and light, a faithful presence of the gospel that reconciles man to God and reconciles man to man. The big idea of today's message is Christ calls us to a life of internal flourishing despite our external circumstances. Let me repeat that. Christ calls us to a life of internal flourishing despite our external circumstances. Christianity may not change your circumstance, but Christ changes your life by changing you despite your circumstance. Let's pray. Father, Father, we come before you this morning, as we come before this text, as we see gospel reality for us, as we live in a time where gospel truth is so desperately needed. We live in a time where people are confused, where Christians are confused, where pastors have been confused, caught up in political or secular theory and thinking. Father, help us to come back to the truth of your word. Help us to come back to the one truth that unites all men and women, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and was risen from the dead so that we can understand what it means to love you with everything that we are and to love our fellow man, our neighbor, as ourselves. But you call us to something greater. You call us to love our neighbors as ourselves, but you call us to love one another, fellow believers, the way that you loved us. Which is a high calling. Father, I pray that beginning in our church, that we would truly understand what it means to love one another despite any differences. Father, I pray, Lord, then that you would continue to cultivate in us deep discipleship so that we would know more and more daily what it means to have our minds transformed by your word so that your word begins to take flesh in our life so that wherever we go, we emanate as your salt and light, your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.